Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Business, it's all the things that keep this world turning. And behind every one of these companies is a partner helping to keep it all moving. It's why the local flower shop and your favorite pizza joint, the startup and the stadium, hospitals and hotels, banks and restaurants nationwide, all choose the advanced network, cybersecurity solutions, and round-the-clock trusted partnership from Comcast Business, the company that powers more businesses than anyone else. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Restrictions apply. Call or visit ComcastBusiness.com to learn more. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. On January 17, 2021, Russian politician and opposition leader Alexander Navalny, better known as Alexei, was arrested on his re-entry to Russia. This was his first visit back to Russia after being poisoned months before, an attempted murder which journalists have linked to President Vladimir Putin's intelligence services. A Russian judge ordered Navalny to spend more than two years in a Russian prison labor colony, and his arrest and imprisonment have set off some of the widest protests Russia has seen in years, not to mention a movement for sanctions in the West. Now, Navalny is a complex figure. He is portrayed in the West as a staunch advocate of democracy and press freedoms. And in many senses, he is. Yet it's also true that in recent months, there's been renewed scrutiny of some of his nationalist and even xenophobic public comments from about a decade ago. Amnesty International decided on the basis of those comments to remove his designation as prisoner of conscience because they say you have to not only stand up for good ideas, but also not express hate to qualify. This is a complex and tricky issue, as is the question of what Navalny's return and the protests mean in Russia. To better understand it, and to hear more about how the news is covered by the free Russian press today, to the extent that it still exists, we decided to interview one of Russia's leading journalists. Diana Kachalova is the editor-in-chief of the St. Petersburg Bureau of Novaya Gazeta, a Russian newspaper known for its investigative journalism. Three decades ago, she helped start the first post-Soviet independent daily newspaper. She carries out her job in a country where independent investigative journalism carries real personal danger. She's here to talk with us about Navalny and also about the press and the meaning of protest for 
Putin's Russia. Thank you, Diana, for being here. I want to begin with a question that may seem very obvious to you, but for American listeners, even those who listen to the news carefully, is perhaps a little less clear. And that is, why does Vladimir Putin treat Alexei Navalny as the kind of threat that he appears to be treating him as? Why not just let him come back to the country and more or less ignore him on his arrival in Russia? I think Vladimir Putin believes that Russia is absolutely surrounded by enemies. And it's not that he just hates him because he doesn't believe Navalny or something. He absolutely trusts in the papers which are put on his table every morning. You know, the guy does not use internet. He trusts on the papers which his secretaries or someone is preparing for him and bringing. That's why that's his picture of reality. And he absolutely believes that Russia is surrounded by enemies and that Navalny is one of them and he's foreign agent and paid by CIA and everything. If someone is attacking you, that's because he's an enemy and he wants to destroy him and his country. Let's imagine in his worldview, Navalny is a paid CIA agent. Does Putin actually worry that his own support in the country is so weak that Navalny could gain substantial number of adherents on the ground? Is is Putin so nervous about his own grip on power? You know, uh, I cannot say what's in the head of Putin. I can just tell you uh, a few days ago, we had in St. Petersburg the meeting with our governor of St. Petersburg. It is much lower level of uh, bureaucracy, but we were talking about the last riots, which were in St. Petersburg and in Moscow in the end of January, beginning of February, uh, where a lot of journalists were beaten and arrested. But his reaction was, Maybe they were not the journalists. Maybe they were just pretending to be a journalist. His reality and his picture of what's happening in his city is absolutely different from what's happening in the streets. And when I mentioned that police is beating journalists and you're telling this to the guy and he's like, no, you're wrong. And I think the problem is that This is partially Putin's fault that he surrounded himself with the people who are not delivering him the right information. It's not like in Stalin times when the people were saying, oh, you know, that Tsar does not know what really happens. Everyone is in the prisons, everyone is tortured in Gulag, and Stalin does not know. Here is more or less the same situation because he does not understand it from my point of view. Can, can I ask, Diana, you referred just now to the events of January and February, the, the public response to Navalny's return to the country and to his arrest. Can you say more about what you think really happened and also about whether the people who were turning out there were doing so because they really actively support Navalny or because they're frustrated with other aspects of Putin's government or whether they're worried about underlying economic issues? What, what drew people into the streets? Uh, what was happening in Moscow in St. Petersburg was unheard for a long time because for a long time since 2011 and 12, when there were a lot of uh, protests in Moscow in St. Petersburg, nothing like this happened. There were a lot of people and there were much younger audience and the reaction of the state was different from 
10 years ago, it was much more suppressive. It was much more police, Rosgvardia, Amon, you know, all this enforcement power. And there were much ruder, there were much more people arrested. Uh, there was like the whole city, I'm talking about St. Petersburg, was paralyzed absolutely paralyzed because they closed most of the streets. You cannot go, even if you're going to the theater, cinema, anywhere. And what was interesting, it was absolutely different atmosphere. I do remember the protests 10 years ago, and there was a lot of uh, slogans, a lot of humor, a lot of jokes. But these times, there were kind of almost gloomy atmosphere. And this time the people came on the streets to show, even not to support Navalny, they wanted to show that they're sick, they're tired of this, and they don't want to be treated like that. But the atmosphere was kind of, on these protests, were kind of gloomy. Because the people, it feels like the people did not have so much to say anymore. They were just walking and showing that they're here and they don't like what's going on. Seen from the outside, that's really fascinating and, of course, very sad as well. You know, a gloomy protest is one where the protesters don't have a realistic expectation that they can change the underlying state of affairs. And that implies that the government efforts to suppress the protests were effective, right? That if they've communicated to ordinary people who are brave enough to go into the streets, that you're just doing this symbolically, it has no chance of succeeding, then that would imply that from a purely, you know, Machiavellian perspective of preserving his own power, Putin has handled this uh, whole process with the return of Navalny very successfully. Is that is that your interpretation? It was not necessary to be so cruel. It was not no need in such a cruelty. But the whole goal of this was just to threaten the people who came, to threaten the people who were thinking maybe to come, and to send them the message, don't move. If you'll not move, maybe you'll be more or less okay. And, you know, a lot of people were afraid to come. You know, in St. Petersburg, how many people came 10, 20, maybe 25,000 the most. The population of the city is 5 million. In Moscow, it was the same percent of the population. It's nothing. It's not so much. And if you'll ask the majority of people who were not there, maybe we are thinking that, you know, the, these protests are useful, but will not go ourselves. And what can this 20,000 crowd with nothing, no arms, nothing, what they can achieve just to show that they don't like it. And that's all. They're helpless. We're helpless. What do you think and what do other Russians whom you speak to think about the possible effects of sanctions placed either on Putin or on people around him um, in the past and also in the present in a consequence of the Navalny imprisonment? Do those sanctions seem to you meaningful? And do they send a message of support? And will they be likely to have any effect at all on the Putin regime or government? Or do you see them as rather too little too late or emptily symbolic and unlikely to affect Putin? You know, we're surrounded by sanctions since 2014, if I'm not mistaken, and there are more and more. And I think that people are just getting confused. Uh, I'm talking about ordinary people. They're just getting confused which sanctions were where and for what particular reason. 
people are a long time ago confusing who is sanctioning what. And the message on TV is not that America or European Union are sanctioning particular people who are involved in Navalny case, like, you know, from investigative committee, from the police, this uh, other, you know, the people who are involved in this. Uh, all the time on TV, there is a send a message that these sanctions are against Russia, not against particular people. And a lot of people believe in this. You know, there are two audiences in Russia, like probably everywhere else. There is a TV audience which believes what uh, first, second, and third channel is saying. And then there is an internet audience, which is a little uh, more advanced. But I think a big majority of the population of Russia is using internet. But if you'll see how they're using, they're not reading political news. They're finding the recipes for cooking, for knitting, for everything like this, to send each other flowers, electronic one. They're not reading political news. That's why what they were told on TV, they would believe. That raises a really fascinating and important question that I think uh, we in the West don't have a good understanding of for the most part, including people who try to follow uh, news about Russia. And that is, what is the practical reality of press freedom in Russia today? I mean, we understand that Russia is ranked very low on the press freedom index. I, I looked it up and as of 2020, it was 149 out of 179 countries. So that's pretty low. Um, but here you are, um, your, your paper, Novaya Gazeta, does publish. I also read online, I don't know if this is true, that six of your journalists were murdered in the past 20 years. You'll tell me if that's correct or not. But what, what is the day-to-day -day way that you can think about what press coverage you're allowed to provide, what you're allowed to say, what will provoke consequences? How do you do your job every day? Uh, the number is correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, now about how we, how we're dealing. Yes, in Kim, that's a pretty high threat. That's a that's a very high risk position that you're in. You're by definition an extremely brave person. I can start with a kind of joke. Mm -hmm. In the Soviet Union, many many years ago, of course, the Soviet Union was accused that that the Jews are treated very bad in Soviet Union. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's why in every organization in a high ranked positions there was at least one very important Jew. And, uh, for example, in the military, in the headquarters of the army, there was General Dragunsky, the General Dragunsky. And when anyone was trying to accuse Soviet Union on, you know, treating the Jews bad and not allowing them to get some ceiling in their uh, career and everything like this, they were saying, oh, what, we have General Dragunsky, what you want? We're not treating Jews bad. You see how high he is ranked. Uh, Sometimes I feel like this General Dragunsky. Nova Gazeta exists as this General Dragunsky to say that, what are you talking? Why there is no freedom? There is plenty of freedom. We have that, 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 that. They're online, they're published. The problem is that for a long time, it was a popular number, 86%. 86% of the population who is supporting Putin. I think now this number is lower, but there was a lot of jokes about this, and it's still high. Means, But this 86%, they don't read Nova Gazeta. They don't listen to Echo of Moscow. They are not on a Facebook, 
They're even not in a telegram. They're in a uh, social media called Adnaklasniki, classmates. There is nothing about politics there. This is the majority of the population in Russia. And the problem of the media, kind of like Novaya Gazeta, we don't know how to talk with them. We are not reaching the biggest audience. We are talking with each other. You know, we can agree or not agree with Navalny as a politician, but he is amazing in propaganda, in delivering his message. The way how he is putting and how he's delivering this message is going out of this circle of elite liberal media. From my point of view, that's the biggest achievement of what Navalny is doing. That's really fascinating because if I'm understanding you correctly, what you're saying is that your paper and, and the other small number of papers are essentially what we would call in the United States tokens, like General David Abramovich Dragunsky, who was kind of, you're saying, a token, the token Jew whom people could point to. I just looked him up. I see him with his <laughs> twice awarded title, Hero of the Soviet Union, uh, with, yeah, his, yeah, with yeah. his medals. Um, so your, your tokens, and therefore you can be tolerated because you're not seen as posing a very great threat because not that many people are listening to the stories that you are telling. But then what made Navalny distinctive is that he's a skilled disseminator of information. So he takes a story that you've already covered. And what he did had the effect of getting people to look up and take notice who might not have taken notice previously. And that made him a threat. Do you ever worry that if you're if you started to reach a broader audience, then you wouldn't be useful tokens anymore and then you would be in danger? Our slogan is we are writing about the facts which everyone else is silent about. And I think for a lot of people, we are the last hope. And I think we need to do the job which we are doing daily. We cannot not do it. One thing that might help me at least to understand how you do it is when you're thinking about covering a given story, do you find yourself asking yourself, how will the government react to this? Or do you think to yourself, our paper is recognized as critical, and so we can say whatever we want, and we don't have to worry on a minute-to-minute -minute basis that reporting the wrong story will land us in, in trouble? Uh, you know, if I'll be thinking every time before thinking about the story, how the government will react, probably will not publish anything. Mm -hmm. that's, why, <laughs> that's why I think the main concern is, is the story exclusive? Is the story interesting? Is it a, raising a real serious topic? What we are doing, we're very careful putting the words together, very careful. And I think in the last few years, I'm spending more time, some time with our lawyer mm -hmm. reading and trying to find the ways how you want to deliver this information, but you know that after this you'll be in court. How to deliver it that it will be not like immediate case for, for the court. And I think I spent more time with our lawyer than some time with our journalists hmm. discussing that. We'll be right back. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. 
Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. One of the aspects of the coverage of Navalny that has been confusing for lots of people watching from the outside is that his own politics are not necessarily the ones that people on the outside imagine that would be the politics of someone who's a critic of, of Putin. For example, Navalny seems to be a serious nationalist. And indeed, Amnesty International shocked and surprised a lot of people by withdrawing his status as a prisoner of conscience in their category on the ground that he had in the past said things in a nationalist vein that they considered to be offensive or discriminatory. Tell us a little bit first about the backstory here. What what are Navalny's political views and where do they fall with respect to mainstream Russian opinion on the question of nationalism? Uh, you know, anti-Muslim, anti Gastarbeiters, guest workers, yeah, anti guest workers, all that kind of stuff. Okay, you know, he was never saying Russia для русских, as I do remember, Russia for Russians. <laughs> but I think it was kind of like what the polite you will not say such things in a polite society. Yes, but it was a long time ago. The people are changing. In the last few years, he never apologized for what he said. Mm -hmm. He never mentioned this fact. He never said that he was wrong. Mm -hmm. But in the last few years, the way how he talks changed, and he never was accused in the last years in the same kind of sayings. Did he do this on purpose? Just you cannot get in his brain, right? And what he thinks, but probably he understood that it's not the correct things to say. One of the main accusations of Navalny from Kremlin is that he does not have any suggestions how to lead country to the perfect future. His <clears throat> program was published 
And he doesn't sound like something outrageous. It's kind of relatively democratic program of what he would like to do and how he would like to change this country, improving the situation in, you know, in bureaucracy and all this corruption. Because those sound like the issues that most people are most bothered by, that, that the government seems to be pretty corrupt and spending a lot of money on itself and that that affects them on a daily basis. You know, this is, unfortunately, I think that's not so much true that the people are thinking about the corruption on a daily basis. If you'll ask what they're bothered about, Mm -hmm. the corruption will be not the biggest priority in that. What will the biggest priority be? What what is your sense Uh, of what the biggest priority is? I think right now will be rising the prices of food, mm-hmm. quality of medical care, mm-hmm. the quality of life in general. The problem is the people understand these particular small problems. You know, for example, here is a very bad clinic, mm-hmm. local clinic. Yeah? Yes. But why it's bad? Why it's so poor? Why there is no uh, modern equipment there? They don't put it together with the fact that that's the f- because of the corruption. Because this money was stolen from somewhere. Uh, the food prices, the, uh, they're growing like crazy. Even on TV, they're saying that, you know, this is the third or the fourth time when Putin is making the order to stop prices to grow. How you can tell the prices not to grow? But why they're growing? That's not the people some time are putting together. You know, for a long time, it was... Very funny to watch the Russian news because first news was about how everything is bad in Ukraine. Then it was about how everything is bad in Europe. Then it was how everything is bad, sorry, in United States and somewhere else. Everywhere is bad. Then were coming the news, very modest, how it is good somewhere in Russia. The people... If you'll be telling them that everything is bad in America, they will believe you. If you because they've never visited America. If you'll be telling them that everything is awful in Europe, they will believe you because they were never in Europe. But you cannot tell them all the time how good it's around them because this they can check. Oh, they're telling me that that's great. And I see that it's that's not good at all. Dana, let me ask you a, a last question in light of that. Um rather depressing picture that you've, you've painted. If people are gradually coming to realize that things around them are, are crumbling and if you can't hide that fact from them, what's the scenario that you see emerging in the next five years, in the next 10 years, in the next 20 years in Russia with respect to, to the political structures? Do you see a world where over time people become sufficiently unhappy that they seek out either a different form of government or different leadership? Or do you see the Putin regime being so robust through its suppression of speech and through its uh, limitation on political action that things could kind of continue along on this path going forward, as they, after all, did for a very long time under the Soviet Union? You know, unfortunately, we don't have the immunization for dictatorship because we we were living in a Soviet Union and the people were accustomed to be absolutely like conformists. And I think the conformism 
is the biggest safeguards for today's Putin regime. Because the people who survived like early 90s when everything, now you know what's going on. They're threatening all the time on TV. You want it to be like in 90s. In 90s, it was really bad. There was problems with food, problems with any goods and everything like this. There was freedom, but there was no supplies. You want to be like in 90s and the people are afraid to change something because they're afraid that it will be worse. And, you know, I'm afraid that we'll have to live in what we are. I don't know for how long because I don't see any uh, reason why it will change in the next two, three, or even maybe more years. Right now, I don't see any possibilities for any changes. I hope I'll be wrong. Uh, hopefully, it will change sooner because this stagnation is more and more feels like we are going back to what was at the end of 70s, early 80s. And it's kind of it's kind of sad. Mm. <laughs> kind of sad, and I think it's kind of depressing because there is only months since uh, there were all these protests in January. And the society is now already distracted and thinking about something else. It was a big, I'll use the word riot again, because it was big, like splash. And then the people got distracted and went back to their homes and went back to their problems, local ones. But Navalny, for Navalny, the problem is he said his last speech, it was an excellent speech in a court. And now he'll be quiet for two and a half years, at least, unless they will give him more for something else. And two and a half years, it's a very long period. Ten years ago, when there was Sergei Udaltsov, whom they put to prison, he was kind of on the same level of popularity as Navalny. They put him to prison for a few years, and in a few years, everyone forgot about him. He is free now, but who remembers him? Who knows what will happen with Navalny in two and a half years? I think we now need to talk not about him in particular, but about his legacy. He is alive, and I hope he'll live a long and happy life, but he will be out of the political landscape for at least two and a half years, maybe even longer. And we need to understand how to keep this atmosphere and how to deliver the messages which he was delivering kind of great to the people that they will understand that the country need the changes. Diana, thank you so much. This is incredibly helpful and really, really fascinating. I want to express my own admiration for the very hard work you're putting in every day at significant personal risk to, to get the news out. You know, we, we in the United States have had challenges to press and they're serious and need to be taken seriously, but they pale compared to uh, what you're dealing with on a daily basis. I really want to thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay. Bye. I learned a huge amount from listening to Diana and I don't know about you, but my feelings over the course of our conversation alternated between feeling moved and impressed by her bravery, the bravery of her colleagues, and the bravery of people who went to the streets to protest the Putin regime, and feeling dejected and depressed 
about what Diana sees as the rather limited prospects for meaningful change in the near future in Russia. Protests that arose after Navalny's revelations about one of Putin's palaces were the largest that we've seen in years. And they reflect, Diana thinks, real genuine public dissatisfaction with the way the government is doing its job and with the extent of corruption that exists in the government. At the same time, Diana was quick to add that most people in Russia don't spend their time thinking about systematic corruption. They think about the limitations in their quality of life and the problems in their economy, much like people do everywhere else in the world. Similarly, when it comes to the status of the press, I was moved and impressed by the way that Diana describes her role and that of her colleagues in reporting the truth and continuing to do so, no matter what the consequences might be. Yet, I was dispirited by her observation that most people in the public don't bother to listen to the news that she reports, and her own honest self-assessment in which she compared the status of the free Russian media to that of a token Russian Jewish general in the senior ranks of the Soviet military. My ultimate takeaway from the conversation is that those alternating feelings of being inspired and being depressed are what happens when you get the truth from somebody doing her job under very difficult circumstances. Clearly, Diana would not do what she does if she did not believe that it had a purpose and a goal. And that purpose and goal went beyond just telling the truth, but also extended to making permanent change in Russia. Here's hoping that her aspirations are as accurate as her investigative reporting tries to be. Until the next time I speak to you, be careful, be safe, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mo Laborde. Our engineer is Martin Gonzalez. And our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hey there, parents and teachers. Are you tired of feeling like every day is a battle of wills with your kids? Let me tell you about something that changed the game. Love and logic. 
Love & Logic isn't just another parenting or teaching strategy. It's a mindset shift that empowers you to raise responsible, respectful kids while keeping your sanity intact. With Love & Logic, you'll learn practical techniques to set limits with empathy, give your kids the tools they need to make smart choices, and build relationships based on mutual respect and understanding. Love & Logic stands behind their methods with a one-year money-back guarantee. Try it out risk-free. If it doesn't change your life, we'll buy it back. Plus, you can get 10% off with code IHEART10. So if you're ready to say goodbye to power struggles and hello to peaceful, loving relationships with your kids, it's time to give Love & Logic a try. Visit their website or call today. Your sanity will thank you. Love & Logic, because parenting and teaching should be a joy, not a chore. Visit loveandlogic.com.